We're reading through the Bible this year for that very purpose, that we might better understand and know God's Word so that we can hear Him speak to us through it every day. And we are in the midst of reading Paul's letters. And we looked a little bit at Romans last week. And today I want us to look at another one of Paul's letters. And this letter is to his young protege, Timothy. Now, Paul wrote a lot of his letters to, to churches to address problems those churches were experiencing or to encourage them to be faithful in the midst of uh, sharing the gospel in the face of persecution. And these churches, we have to remember, were new churches. The, the Jesus movement was very young. We're just talking decades after Jesus' life and ministry and His resurrection. And so they're kind of figuring this whole missions and church, they're kind of figuring this all out as they go. And so God used Paul, full of the Holy Spirit, to give instruction to these churches on how to do church. How, how, you know, what is a deacon, and how does that work, and how do you call a pastor, and, and those sorts of things. And everything that Paul instructs these churches, he bases on the gospel message that King Jesus, out of his love for us, died to pay the price for our sins, rose from the grave victorious, and is coming back again. And you'll notice as you read Paul's letters that words and themes like love and service and humility, Jesus' death and resurrection, grace and the gospel, come up again and again and again. And that's no less true here in 1 Timothy. As Paul writes to Timothy, a young pastor at the church of Ephesus, uh, and here in chapter 3, Paul instructs, Timothy and the Ephesian church on the offices of pastor. Your translation may use the word overseer or it may use the word bishop. Uh, and the office of deacon. And today I want us to focus on Paul's teaching on deacons as we come together as a church today to ordain, install, and commission men to serve here as deacons. Paul's letter here can help us understand a lot about the position of a deacon, the kind of person who should serve as a deacon, the preparation to be a deacon, and the promise to deacons. Let's look at those today, beginning with the deacon's position. And that is that the deacon is called to serve. Read with me in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 and 8. Here is a trustworthy saying, if anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, that's the word I was talking about, overseer, bishop, pastor, he desires a noble task. And then he proceeds to talk uh, through verse 7 about Pastors, But look with me at verse 8. Deacons, likewise, are to be men worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, and not pursuing dishonest gain. Now, I want you to notice the word there in verse 8, likewise. That word is there to distinguish the deacons from the pastors that he's been talking about. That the office of deacon, the office of pastor are separate offices. But that word likewise also draws comparison. So he's saying that these are different offices, but in a lot of ways, they've got some similarities. The title deacon comes from the Greek word diakonos, which means literally servant, one who serves. Now up in verse 1, that title of overseer or bishop, the word pastor, those, those words, and I can go into all the Greek for those, but those are all used interchangeably by Paul to refer to the spiritual shepherd of a congregation, to the pastors who are leading that congregation. 
So deacons are not pastors, and pastors are not deacons. They're different. But like pastors, being a deacon is a noble task. It is an office to which God calls men to serve. And like pastors, there are qualifications. There are high standards that are being set for those who will serve the church as a deacon. We heard in our New Testament reading this morning in Acts chapter 6, the account of the calling of the first deacons. These men were, these seven men were, were, they had high qualifications. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. They were full of wisdom and faith. And while we know that two of those original seven went on to be heroes of the faith, you know, Stephen was the first martyr, the first follower of Jesus Christ to give his life for the gospel. And then Philip the evangelist, he was the first one to take the gospel to the Samaritans. So they were heroes of the faith. But those other five men, we don't know a lot about them. They're sort of the unsung heroes of the faith. But we, we know that they were faithfully serving the church in Jerusalem as deacons and meeting the needs in that congregation. You know, today our deacons are a lot like them. They are unsung heroes. They visit people in the hospital and the nursing homes. They welcome new members into the church. They reach out to those who are visiting. They reach in to those that we are missing They walk alongside people in their grief and they help our homebound members feel loved and cared for. That's what it means to be a deacon. A servant of the church. A preserver of its unity. The next question is, what kind of person does it take to do that? What kind of person can serve as a deacon? And Paul tells us that next as we look at the deacon's person. You see, God is far more interested in who we are than what we do. So those who serve the church, whether it's as pastors or as deacons, must first of all be the kind of Christians that we are trying to lead other people to be. Look with me again at verse 8. Deacons likewise are to be men worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, and not pursuing dishonest gain. So the first thing we see about the person of a deacon is they should command respect from others. Respect from other people. That means that a deacon should be an honorable, dignified person who is serious-minded about spiritual issues and about the, the, the things concerning the church. Now, it doesn't mean that he's stern or unyielding, but it means that he does command respect from others because of the way he lives his life. This is a positive trait. Now, the the next three traits are framed in the negative. Paul, after he talks about being worthy of respect, goes on to say three things that deacons should not be. And these three things all deal with self-control. That's the second thing. A deacon should command respect from others because he has control of himself. And the first thing that he talks about here is speech. When he says sincere, the literal translation there is not double-tongued. Okay, a deacon should not be double-tongued. In other words, he should be sincere and truthful in everything he says. A deacon speaks his mind. He's honest. He should tell you what he thinks about something, but do it in, in a loving and encouraging way. His promises should be reliable because you know he's not talking out of both sides of his mouth. He's not saying one thing now but really thinks something different. He practices what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Simply let your yes... Be yes, and your no, no. That's what Paul means by sincere. He's sincere in the things that he says. The second way that a deacon should be in control of himself concerns his appetites. 
Specifically, Paul says that deacons should not be indulging in too much wine. Now, I'm not going to get too much into that. What does he mean by too much wine? I'll I'll leave that to you guys. But uh, the Greek word here, indulge, means occupy yourself with. It means to be devoted to or to pay attention to. In other words, Paul says deacons shouldn't be occupied with or devoted to alcohol. This is similar to Paul's instructions up in verse 3. I'm not going to let pastors off the hook. He says, pastors should not be given to drunkenness. And in Titus 2.3, Paul says that the elder women in the church should not be addicted to much wine. I think that rather than getting bogged down in, in what's Paul saying here about alcohol, I think we need to broaden the scope of this. I think if we focus too much on that, we miss the point. I think we can broaden this to refer to all of our appetites. Not just what we drink, but what we eat. The media that we consume. The hobbies and the activities that we let consume our time. What Paul is saying is that deacons must have their appetites and their speech. And here in a minute, he's going to talk about their finances. The deacons should have these things under his control. He shouldn't be controlled by them. Self-control in what we say, in our appetites, and thirdly, in our finances. He says deacons should not be greedy for dishonest gain. Now again, this is comparative with what Paul says earlier about pastors in verse 3, that they should not be lovers of money. And Peter talks about this as well in 1 Peter 5, 2. He says of pastors, Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. So both pastors and deacons should serve God and His church because they want to, eagerly, because God wants them to, not for financial gain. Serving the Lord should never be, whether you're a pastor or deacon or just a church member in the pew, serving the Lord should never be about what's in it for me. Whether that's just personal recognition or some kind of personal gain, we should never allow what's in it for us to drive who we minister to, how we minister, when and where we minister. We serve because the Spirit of the Lord compels us and no other reason. When we begin to let personal gain drive our faith and service, we begin to head down a path of great temptation, a path that has led many people away from the faith. And in fact, if you'll flip with me over to chapter 6 real quick, Paul warns Timothy about so-called teachers who think godliness is a means to financial gain. And this is a good warning for all of us. Look at verse 5 right there. He, he ends this section describing these false teachers, and he says that uh, they think that godliness is a means to financial gain. But in verse 6, Paul says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. 
So all of us should take note of that, that we are to serve the Lord in pursuit, not of financial gain, but godliness, which is of great gain, contentment with what God has blessed us with and being good stewards of all of His resources. So deacons should first of all command respect from others. Secondly, they should be in control of themselves, especially their speech, their appetites, and their finances. Especially their financial motivations and their ethics. But deacons must also live a true life of faith. Look at verse 9. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. Deacons, in other words, should be men who genuinely embrace the Christian faith in a way that is evidenced in how they live. Paul gives Timothy a similar charge back in chapter 1, verse 19, where he encourages Timothy to fight the good fight. And he says that you fight the good fight by holding on to faith and a good conscience. Paul says that the alternative is to shipwreck your faith. Now, in the first century, to the people that Paul is writing to, your conscience was the same thing as your will. You know, we talk about will and our willpower and our will to do something. When, when, you, read a, when you read the word conscience in the New Testament, insert their will. That's what they're referring to. So, to hold on to truth and faith with a clear conscience meant far more than just agreeing intellectually with truth. It meant agreeing volitionally with truth as well. In other words, a single-minded person was someone whose mind and will were in alignment with their life and their purpose. Right belief should always result in righteous behavior. Our doctrine should translate into our practice. In other words, Paul says that a deacon should walk the walk and not just talk the talk. Or as James wrote, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Deacons should be so committed to the truths of God that they are doers of the word. Every aspect of their lives should be informed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And finally, Paul says that they should also have a commitment to family. Look with me in verses 11 and 12. In the same way, their wives are to be women worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be the husband of but one wife and must manage his children and his household well. Now, this verse 11 here has caused a lot of debate in churches for a long time. Uh, the Greek word here is simply the word for women. So the NIV that I'm preaching from translates it. It says, in the same way their wives are to be women worthy of respect. But there's a little uh, note there that uh, says that some translations say deaconesses. Okay? But the Greek word, if you, went, if you went to the Greek New Testament, it's just simply the word for women. Paul says, likewise, the women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in anything. This is one of those places where you want to just say, Paul, couldn't you have given us a little bit more clarification here? What are, what are you talking about? Really, there are two interpretations for this passage right here. One is that he is addressing the wives of the deacons, and the second interpretation is that it is a separate office for deaconesses, for women deacons. Now, 
I could spend the whole sermon just walking through this one issue, but I'm not going to do that. But I do want to briefly explain why I agree with this interpretation, this NIV translation, that translates it as the wives of the deacons. First, it's the fact that that Paul addresses them in the midst of his instructions to deacons. Now, if you read the whole chapter and you read when Paul addresses groups in Titus, he always takes them orderly. He talks, about, he talks to the young women and the elder women, the young men and the elder men. He talks to pastors. He talks to deacons. It would be weird for him to, to change lanes in mid-thought and suddenly start addressing a separate group of people. The second reason I think that is that Paul mentions women right before he gives the next qualification about how deacons are to relate to their wives and children. So thematically, it makes sense that he is addressing the wives of the deacons here. But third, and I think this is, this is what's the most convincing for me, when you consider Paul's recurring themes about avoiding the appearance of evil and how important it is for church leaders to manage their households well, when you consider the work of the deacons, I mean, just think about these New Testament deacons, these early church deacons. They were going into people's homes. And, and most of the members of the early church were women. There were lots of women. In fact, Paul and other letters are addressing the women. There's a lot of women whose husbands are still, you know, pagans. They're unbelieving. And, and some of them are, are harsh and abusive and persecuting them. And so Paul is addressing these young Christian uh, women whose husbands are not believers. We know from the Acts chapter 6 passage, a lot of the women in the church were widows. So you've got these deacons that are going around ministering to these women in their homes. And so in order for them to avoid temptation or avoid the appearance of impropriety, their wives would have gone along with them as partners in ministry, helping them to minister to the women in these churches. So a deacon's wife would have been a true partner with him in ministry. That's why when Paul references them in verse 7, he uses that word likewise again. And he gives them a, a list of qualifications that really are a summary of what he's already given the men. He's told the women to be worthy of respect, just like he told the men. To control their speech. To be temperate in their appetites. To be trustworthy in their financial dealings. And then in the next verse, Paul turns his attention back to the deacons. And how they are to relate to their wives as well as their children. Now... This is, again, in parallel to Paul's instructions for pastors up in verses 4 through 5, where he says that pastors should manage their household well because if anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? In other words, the home is sort of a proving ground of your faith. If you're going to be a leader in the church, you, you first kind of get your legs under you as a leader at home. Now, verse 12 is another one of these verses that has become sort of controversial. The literal translation here, when it says a deacon must be the husband of but one wife, the literal Greek translation says that the deacon must be a one-woman man. That, that's what it says. The question, though, is, is Paul saying that men who have been remarried for whatever reason are ineligible to be deacons? Well, I'm going to give you the short answer, and I'm going to explain briefly why I think that when it comes to this particular verse. And I think the answer to that is no. Paul isn't being proscriptive here. He's not telling them what to do. He's being descriptive here. He assumes that most deacons are going to be married men who have more than one child. Because if we want to take literally what he means, that they are to be the husband of but one wife, if we're to take that literally, we also have to take literally the fact that he uses the word children plural. 
So are we going to say that a deacon can't be a deacon or a pastor can't be a pastor if they only have one child? Because Paul used the plural children. So you have to be careful about how literally we take what Paul is saying here. Like I said, he's being more descriptive than proscriptive. Some people say, well, he's not talking about divorce here. He's talking about polygamy here. That's what he's saying. He's saying that they can't be married to more than one woman at a time. I don't think that's what he's saying either. Now, don't get me wrong. Paul is certainly against polygamy. Amen? (laughs) I mean, we can agree on that. And I would say that Paul is against divorce, as was Jesus, as is God. That's a whole other sermon. But Paul here is calling would-be deacons to a life of sexual integrity and marital fidelity. That's what Paul's getting at. He's taking the commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery, and he's putting it in the positive framework of a marriage relationship. Deacons must be committed to the covenant of marriage and God's design for the family. That's what I believe Paul is getting at here. Deacons should be an example with their families as to what God intends for the family to be. We get into the particulars, that's a a whole other discussion. So in the midst of this description of what kind of person a deacon is to be, Paul also mentions briefly the preparation for a deacon. Look look back at verse 10. You might have noticed we skipped verse 10. He says the deacon must first be tested. And then if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In other words, a deacon should be tested over time. Now this isn't necessarily some sort of like a formal exam or even a ordination council, as some churches do, though those, those things aren't unhelpful. But rather what Paul means is that the church tests the potential deacon through the observation of their lives. In chapter 5, verse 22, if you'll flip there and look, Paul further warns Timothy, Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, and do not share in the sins of others. In other words, take your time. Before you lay hands on someone to ordain them as a deacon or as a pastor, take your time, slow down, put them to the test, observe their lives, examine them to see, as Jesus said, you can tell a tree by its fruit. What kind of fruit did their lives bear? Their deeds, their actions, their attitudes tell you a lot about their heart. That's the preparation of a deacon. It's the preparation of discipleship. It's the preparation of life in the community of the church, serving and doing those things and being that person and leading your family the way God intends. And then finally, in verse 13, we see the deacon's promise. Paul says, "...those who have served well gain an excellent standing." and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. So Paul concludes his instruction on the office of deacon with two promises. For those who serve well. In other words, genuine servanthood has its rewards, and here's two of them. The first is an excellent standing. Now, the Greek here literally is, is, is the idea of your position in the church sort of increasing like a soldier. It's the same phrase that would be used for a soldier being promoted through the ranks. So that's what he means right there. Now, now what does that mean? Well, it's similar to the idea we read in, in the book of Acts, that the early church enjoyed the favor of all the people, that they were highly regarded by the people. In other words, this is how faithful deacons are viewed within the church. They gain 
greater levels of respect and trust and, and authority. You know, their opinions have weight and matter because they have served with integrity and sincerity. And we certainly have men in this church that have done that very thing. And when they speak, people listen. Their opinions count. When they show up in a hospital room or, or at, a, at a graveside, their presence has such great weight because they have lived and served with such faithfulness and integrity. Some of those men we've even honored in this church as honored deacons because of their life of service. They've gained an excellent standing. But the second promise is that they would also get great assurance in their faith. Literally, Paul says that they will develop boldness as they faithfully follow Christ and serve His church. It's a boldness that, that, that is, enables them to both speak about God to others as they share the gospel, but it's also a boldness in being able to speak to God in prayer. Hebrews 4.16 says that we should be able to enter God's throne room of grace with that kind of confidence. And Paul wrote in Ephesians 3.2, In Him and through faith in Him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. So faithful and sincere deacons will discover a growing boldness in sharing Christ with others, a growing confidence in serving the church in Jesus' name, a growing confidence to be able to pray in Jesus' name. What better rewards for service than to grow in your respect amidst God's family and to grow in your confidence to serve in God's mission. Amen? Serving the Lord and His people is a serious matter. It is a holy calling. And everyone who would endeavor to serve God, whether it's as a pastor or a deacon, must search his own heart to be certain that he is called and qualified. And none of us are qualified by our own efforts or our own goodness. We are only qualified by the grace of God in Christ Jesus. You know... Before we can serve the Lord, we have to belong to the Lord, don't we? We have to experience His saving grace before we can experience His call to serve. And really the first call that anybody can answer is the call to salvation. It's the call of Christ to come and follow me so that He can make us to be fishers of men. He can make us to be disciple makers. My first question to you this morning as we come to a time of invitation is have you answered God's call to salvation? Are you a follower of Jesus Christ? And then as Christians, God gives us another call, and that's a call to church membership. Maybe you're a believer today, but you're not a member of a church. Maybe you've never even baptized. Maybe you've been worshiping with us for some time, and you know that God is calling you to unite with us here and to serve Him at First Baptist Church. During this time of invitation, you can come and unite with this church family. But then God also calls each and every Christian to a life of service. You don't have to be a pastor or a deacon to serve God, to be a disciple maker, to minister to your neighbor, to share the gospel with a co-worker, to be a Sunday school teacher, to work with our children or our youth. Maybe God today has been calling you to serve and you've been putting it off, thinking, I'm just not able, I'm not qualified. God can make you able if you'll just say yes. Would you stand as we sing? You come this morning as God leads you.